0: There's always the intention of questioning, which is you say to each moment, who are you? And I find that a really helpful way to go through my minutes and hours and days as a human being. Not to have my first impulse be to assert something, but to have my first impulse be to ask something.
1: Hello and welcome to Tricycle Talks. I'm James Shaheen and you just heard Jane Hirschfield. Jane is a poet, essayist, and translator, as well as a Tricycle contributing editor. Her new book, The Asking, New and Selected Poems, invites readers to resist fixity and certainty and instead to dwell in not knowing. In our conversation, we talk about the question she's been asking recently, why she views poetry as an antidote to despair, and how she sees the relationship between her poetry and her Zen practice. Plus, she reads a few poems from her new collection. So here's my conversation with Jane. So I'm here with poet Jane Hirschfield. Hi, Jane. It's great to be with you.
0: Wonderful to be talking with you again.
1: So, Jane, we're here to talk about your new book of poetry, The Asking, New and Selected Poems. So to start, can you tell us a little bit about the collection and what inspired you to put it together?
0: Ah, uh, Well, what inspired me to put it together was my editor at Knopf sending me an email and saying, Jane, you're turning 70, and I think <laughs> it's about time you had a New and Selected Poems out. And I had said no something like five times before that, so I lost my excuse, which was I had thought it would be premature, and I could no longer claim it would be premature. (laughs) It's an odd thing. Artists love having a big retrospective at a museum, and most poets really want a new and selected But I've always been a little reluctant to sum myself up in any way, and you can't help but feel when you put together a book with 50 years of your own poems in it, there's a little worry that it might be a tombstone volume. And I'm quite (laughs) happy that a little earlier this summer, I went off and wrote a bunch of new poems, and so I know that there is a future after the asking but maybe you wanted to know more about the book itself and less about the process.
1: (laughs) I do want to know about the book. The collection is called The Asking, and questions have been a central theme of your work, and they're at the heart of the new collection. So what are some of the questions you've been asking lately?
0: Well, that's a wonderful thing to ask. And, you know, lately, and the book are two different questions. You know, I always title my books last. So first you put it together and then you see what's in it. And as you have also noticed, Questioning has always been important to me, and that goes back to, well, it probably goes back to childhood because I was always asking questions in childhood. But as a practice issue, it goes back to my very first week of Zen practice when I was a guest student. Actually, my second week, I was a guest student at Page Street. My first week, I was a guest student at Tassahara, the monastery. And there was a guest student tea, and Soto Zen is not Rinzai Zen. One doesn't work with koans as the main focus of meditation. The stories are told and thought about, but it's not the central practice. And nonetheless, the teacher suggested it's a good idea for you to always have a question in your practice. And over the years, that central practice question has evolved for a very long time. It was a question that I actually ended up writing about in a special section for Tricycle, which is, what is the emotional life of a Buddha? So I looked at that question for many years until I felt that I had saturated myself in it and come up with my own answer to that, which is what's held in the essay. And then I had to find a new question. And so the new question of the last quite a few years is one I think widely shared, which is, how can I be of service? I look at this world from the perspective of someone who, when I was young, just starting adulthood, the very first Earth Day took place, 1970, and... I thought it was going to be attended to. You know, we had seen the first picture of the whole Earth. We understood in 1970 about the crisis of the biosphere, about extinctions. The science of climate change has evolved a great deal since then. But we really understood since far before 1970 that the fossil fuel economy was not good for living beings, not good for us In terms of the economics of it, not good for us in terms of the environmental damage of it, not good for us in terms of our relationship to our sources of happiness, our sources of resilience, of taking care of things as if this earth and our lives were not disposable. And so over the decades, you know, I entered in great hope that this was all going to be addressed and disappointments have been endless. And so in recent years, my question has been, how can I serve? How can I help? What can I do? How can I add my one molecule to the tiller of change?
1: Right. In one of your poems, I sense some frustration. You're admonishing us, all of us, including yourself, not to pretend that we didn't know.
0: Oh, yes, yes. Should I read the poem? That's a pretty central poem. Sure. So that poem is Let Them Not Say. And I wrote it in 2014 as a poem about the crisis of the biosphere and climate. And when I wrote it, it frightened me and I felt it had work to do. And I didn't just send it out to be published anywhere. I held on to it because it felt to me like a poem that wanted to do some real work. And as it turned out, it ended up going out from the Academy of American Poets on their Poem A Day, which goes to many, many hundreds and thousands of people now, on the day of the last president's inauguration. So, January 20th, 2017. And so, a poem which began as an environmental poem became also a political poem. It's a poem looking from the point of view of the future, which will look at us and know what we did or didn't do. Let them not say, let them not say, we did not see it. We saw. Let them not say, we did not hear it, we heard. Let them not say, they did not taste it, we ate, we trembled. Let them not say, it was not spoken, not written. We spoke, we witnessed with voices and hands. Let them not say, they did nothing. We did not enough. Let them say, as they must say, something. A kerosene beauty. It burned. Let them say, we warmed ourselves by it, read by its light, praised, and it burned. The poem is hoping to make itself incomprehensible. If the poem were fully heard and acted upon, Someone reading it two hundred years from now should say, What was she so worried about? Why was she so worried? I hope it is a poem that will become meaningless for having been written.
1: Well, thank you. That's lovely. And chilling, and we warm ourselves to it. You know?
0: Well, we do. You know, I fly in airplanes, I turn my lights on, I am complicit.
1: Yeah. So you write from your earliest work, you have investigated justice. It's always been a concern in your poetry. So how do you understand justice? And I have often thought about this because in Buddhism, I try to understand where the parallel is to our own sense of justice in the Western cultural sphere. So what is the relationship between justice and asking?
0: Well, justice is one name for The paramitas for the world going rightly or wisely, however you want to translate the paramitas or the Eightfold Path. Justice to me is what things look like when each of us recognizes our inseparability from the whole and each of us is able to live inside some sense that that is actually how we are. Enacting our social contract with one another, our compact of coexistence, not only with human beings, but with all beings, with the planet itself. You know, I love that a very few countries have begun to give the environment legal standing as if it were a person in their justice systems. A river needs justice, a human being needs justice. Even a mosquito has its own sense of justice, I imagine. And sometimes these things are at odd, and always it is difficult. It is just difficult. Perhaps the closest we can come to actual justice is to say we tried our best, that we are always aware that we did not enough, and we are always trying to do better It has to do with dignity. It has to do with equity. I think often these days of Maslow's hierarchy of needs and how if a person does not feel safe, is not housed, is not fed, they cannot act in ways that allow the next levels of the hierarchy to come into being because they are frightened or they are angry. And so taking care of our most basic needs in a way where you don't have the 0.1% having so much more than any human being or family could ever need, and then so many people homeless on the streets of San Francisco or New York or Los Angeles, that's something about Justice. There's a piece which people can find if they look for, the title is Justice for Windows, and it was published in Virginia Quarterly Review. And it talks about the different systems and understandings and evolution of justice, including the Buddhist system of justice, which seems to me to actually be karma, that Buddhism doesn't have Western retributive or even restorative justice. Buddhism has the idea of karma as how justice works in our lives. And I tend to think of karma in a way that has less to do with future lives and more to do with this very moment. If I behave badly, I feel the stab of that immediately. I don't need to be reborn as a spider.
1: (laughs) You mentioned people are frightened and angry. and That probably describes all of us to some extent anyway. And I wonder what you see as the role of the poet in what you call failures of justice and compassion.
0: Poetry can be used in many ways for many purposes. You know, I don't want to pretend it is completely an act which always includes interconnection, And empathy and all of the values that those on the path of practice are trying to raise in one another and in ourselves. There are war poems. There are angry poems. There are silly poems, which might be more neutral. But for me, when I look at how poems work in our lives, I see in their very fabric, there is empathy and interconnection. The very act of entering another person's language and hearing it inside yourself as if it was your own is an act of permeability and a recalibrating sense of we are not separate from one another. And similarly, inside a poem, all of the devices of poetry, the sound devices, the music, the landscape of metaphor, and how we take in an image. If you read a line about a mountain, you cannot understand the mountain without becoming it for an instant within yourself or becoming the creature walking on the mountain and feeling that steepness in your legs and seeing the sharpness or smoothness of the surfaces or seeing the many beings who are inhabiting the mountain with you. And so simply to actually participate in any work of art is to lower the barricades between yourself and other beings. And so poetry, by its own fabric of what it is and how it works, is already, I choose to believe, an act that moves the psyche towards the values of practice the hopes of practice, the vows of practice. Then within particular poems, for me, I can't speak for everyone, but for me, every poem I write is an act of trying to discover a larger and changed and new way of seeing in the face of the evidence and experience of existence. And so many poems are written when I feel inadequate to some event. So, for example, the poem that I read at the start, Let Them Not Say, that was written out of grief and the sense of my own impotence before the disaster that we are all witnessing more and more. 2014 till now, I mean, you today in New York are in... The extraordinary heat emergency, which has been in this country and in the world going forth all summer this year. Everywhere, people are experiencing unprecedented heat spells, lasting longer, temperatures higher, health conditions more perilous. And we look at this, and the question is what can I do? And because I am a poet, I can do a few things. My daily practice for many years was to take some political action every single day, having nothing to do with being a poet. You know, donations, sending letters, sending postcards. For the moment, I've pretty much settled on postcards, helping people register to vote or encouraging people to vote. But then sometimes I get to do something as myself, not just as one more set of hands pitching in, in a way more intimate than the donation I might also be making. And when I am doing it as myself, this is what I am. I am a poet. I'm not a union organizer. I'm not a giver of speeches or recorder of TikToks. And so what I can do then is write a poem and make that poem available and say that poem when the opportunity arises and hope that because the poem changed me first, that it might help change someone else once it's been written. I write them to change myself. I write them to see more clearly, largely, compassionately, less from the small self and more from the large self. And so those changes are in the poem because they are, why it became a poem in the first place. And perhaps someone else reading the poem will go through the same experience and move, for instance, from anger or incomprehension to compassion
1: you have written about writing poetry as an antidote to despair, so I think of that from your personal point of view. That's really wonderful. I think it has a like effect on the people who read it, certainly when I read your collection. It worked in that way. Without diminishing the sense of urgency, the despair was somewhat attenuated with this call to action, and I found that very important. But while poetry is often marginalized in our culture, although there remains a a strong interest in it, it really does ripple out in unexpected ways. I was in Shakespeare in the Park a few days ago and watched Hamlet, and it's like the English language's greatest hits. Nearly every line is a proverb. And I thought, whether people look at this or not, or listen to this or not, the ripple effect of that poetry has shaped the language itself. So I wonder sometimes how you think of that ripple effect, whether people read it or not, it does have an effect. I hope that inspires and encourages you.
0: Well, it does. And also, I've always loved something that T.S. Eliot said, which was, it doesn't matter who writes the great poems, only that they be written. And so I take great solace from the lines that other people write. As a poet, if you've written one line which actually outlasts your life and goes on helping people. That's pretty extraordinary. Maybe I will, maybe I won't. I'll never know about it. But I do remember so clearly when September 11th happened, two poems circulated so widely. One was Auden, and the other was Adam Zagaevsky. And those poems, people needed poems in those moments, and the poems were there to serve. And that is the point of poetry, to be there, yes, for the people who read a poem every day or every week or pick up a book once a month, perhaps, or find individual poems in the pages of Tricycle and other journals, and every once in a while one truly reaches them and then they copy it down or they give it to another person. But every person, I believe, at the moments of greatest change and greatest crisis, they are thirsty for a sentence or two which will companion them and help them find their way through the tunnel. And so poems are almost always read at funerals and memorial services. And poems are almost always read at weddings. And again, to be unseemly personal about it, Tricycle published a wedding poem that I wrote. A friend was on their way to France to another friend's wedding and asked me if I could suggest a poem. And I looked and looked and looked at all of the usual suspect wedding poems And I was quite dissatisfied with all of them. I finally gave him a poem by E.E. Cummings and said, I think this is the best that I can find for you. You might want to change this one word. And having done that and having thought I had discharged my responsibility to this request, I then started thinking, why am I so dissatisfied with all of these poems? What is it that makes me feel they're not right? Because people have been reading them at weddings for a long time. And, you know, it usually had something to do with either it was for too specific an occasion, you know, written for one particular couple in one particular occasion, or they seemed to me poems better said by one beloved to the other beloved and not by a member of the witnessing friends and family. And then I, uh, being me, had the question, well, what would a wedding poem look like? What do I think would make one that worked? And I sat down to my great surprise and wrote one and gave it to him, and he loved it, and he read it at the wedding. And then it sat in a drawer, quietly steeping, because it's not a regular lyric poem. It's different. It's a ceremonial poem. It's a ritual. And it might have sat in that bottom drawer forever, except tricycle <laughs> had for a while on the inside back cover you were offering things having to do with rituals. And I was asked if I had something to suggest. And I said, well, you know, this poem is completely non-Buddhist. There's nothing Dharma, you know, explicit about it, but it certainly is a ritual. Would you like it? And I gave it to you and it started getting read at weddings all over <laughs> after that. And now has become itself one of the usual suspect wedding poems. It's quite extraordinary.
1: (laughs) Well, like the wedding poems, some of your poems read like imagined rituals or liturgies, like spell to be said before sleep or invocation. Yes. So I'm curious, how do you think about poetry in relation to ritual and prayer? And are there any Zen rituals that inspire your poetry?
0: Oh, that second question. I'll answer the first one and then I'll try to have my unconscious be working on the second one. So, a poem is very much akin to a ritual for a rite of passage. I've been very interested in rites of passage ever since I took an anthropology course in high school and read a man named Turner, wrote a book called The Ritual Process. And that was kind of a life-changing book for me, not least because it talks about how in any rite of passage, there is a moment when a person is no longer the old self and not yet the new self. They are in a state of threshold, of liminality. And that idea has informed my life ever since. And I think that perhaps the strongest experience of liminality I have ever known in my own life was a Buddhist rite of passage. So I am getting to the second part of your question, which was when you go to Tassajara, to the monastery, when you go to enter to stay there as a practicing student, you do what in my era was five days of what's called Tangaryo. And tangario is a ritualized reenactment of the earlier practice of a monk would simply arrive at the monastery gate and sit outside until taken in. So there is no form. When you are in the zendo, sitting your five days of tangario, the only requirement is that you not leave. You stay on your zafu. There are no defined meditation periods unless it's an hour when the rest of the sangha is also in the zendo for meditation. But for long hours in the middle of the day, there's no kinhen, there's no walking meditation, there's nothing but you sitting there and you are so much no one that they continued the year that I was there. They were doing construction projects in the Zendo while we were sitting there. You just didn't count. You were no one and nothing. And it was Physically, for me, almost unbearable because I don't have a body that was actually meant to sit with its legs crossed, never have, even from childhood. And so, in all my years in the monastery, I was there for three years, and I don't think I sat, you know, more than three periods of zazen when I wasn't in pain. Mm -hmm. It just always, there were pain issues. But I adored the experience of being no one. It just felt This is a paradoxical thing to say. It felt such a deeply human thing to not be Jane, to just be this ignored intention, the intention to manage, to stay, to practice. And so, of course, that was informing and life-changing. And part of what I was informed of by the ritual of Tangaryo, also seven-day seshins, which were equally, you know, quite difficult for this body that was determined to stay on the zafu and wasn't built for that. I learned that pain doesn't matter so much, no matter how hard it is, that you can survive it. And in any period of zazen, part of what is being learned is that whatever your experience is, You can simply stay with it. You need not run away. You need not be frightened. You need not reject it. Your only job is to stay on the meditation cushion and be with it and notice that eventually something will change because something always changes. And I think that was a very good instruction to me for practice, for leading my emotional life ever going forward, and for what it is that I am interested in as a poet, which is to not turn away from anything. There is a famous sentence from the Roman poet Terence, nothing human is alien to me. I think sitting on the Zafu and seeing who visits and who you are in all of those hours and hours and weeks and months and years from when I was 21 years old and arrived at Tassajara until now. This is identical to the practice of writing poetry, which is you see what arises and you notice if there's anything you might want to do to help what arises unfold into something larger and deeper. And so there's always the intention of questioning, perhaps, which is you say to each moment, who are you? You say to yourself, who am I? You say to each other person that you meet, are you a Buddha? What is your teaching? What is this teaching? And I find that a really helpful way to go through my minutes and hours and days as a human being. Not to have my first impulse be to assert something, but to have my first impulse be to ask something.
1: Coming up, Jane talks about the relationship between poetry and beginner's mind, how poetry has restructured how she pays attention, and how she learned to say yes to discomfort. For the past 32 years, Tricycle the Buddhist Review has been a leading source of Buddhist news, culture, and conversation. When you become a Tricycle subscriber, you'll enjoy quarterly issues of the print and digital magazine plus so much more, including monthly Dharma Talk videos, film club screenings, virtual events, online course discounts, and access to our 30-year archive. Subscribe today for as little as $6.99 per month at tricycle.org slash subscribe. Okay, so let's get back to our conversation with Jane Hirschfield. You often write about approaching something you haven't looked at closely before or something you've taken for granted. And sometimes the result is destabilizing. It causes us as readers to look again at what we think we know, whether it's a leaf, a frozen egg, or a cat on a shelf suddenly the common occurrence becomes unfamiliar. And I was wondering if you could say something more about the process of defamiliarization.
0: Well, I think that is one way that poetry is very much like the awareness that comes with practice, which is, you know, we could name it perhaps Suzuki Roshi's beginner's mind, that you are always hoping to be inside whatever moment it is you find yourself inside of as if it were new to you, as if you didn't know what it is, as if you weren't able to think about making your grocery list while you're washing the dishes. Just to be in this moment is always to see it newly and freshly. And that is the goal of practice. And that is the goal of writing a poem. If I see nothing New, if I see nothing unfamiliar, if I make no discovery, there's no poem to be written. And so every poem makes some kind of a recalibration of my understanding of experience. If you're reading it on the page, it's because I saw something I hadn't seen before. And then when I look at the poem after it's written, I think, oh, maybe somebody else will find this interesting also. And so then I will publish the poem.
1: That is what the effect of two kerosene lamps had on me. I love that poem because I thought I was familiar with that. Maybe I was familiar with one aspect that became habit and I was no longer able to see anything else. So why don't you read that poem for us? Because there's a perspectival shift that really, all of a sudden, it's from the view of the cat,
0: you know? Yes. (laughs) Yes. And I will add that for me, there was a real question which led to that poem. So first, actual experience happened. I'm describing something which very much did happen. And after it happened, what I thought was when something like what's described in the poem occurs... Why do we not only close our eyes, we actually put our hands over our eyes? It's perfectly useless. (laughs) You know, it's not as though broken glass was going to come flying up into my eyes where I was located. And we do this for emotional crises also. We literally put our hands over our eyes. And I was thinking, what is that? And that became this poem, Two Kerosene Lanterns the cat walks the narrow shelf beneath the window where many delicate things are arranged. Polished ammonites, a dried starfish, three turtle netsuke, a few curls of birch bark, two long unused kerosene lanterns. As if on their own, two hands fly up to cover the person's face, to cover the eyes already closed. The crash, as it must, arrives. The hands lower slowly. The cat sits on the floor in the room's middle, calmly licking one paw. The law of cats is simple. One arrangement becomes another. People are strange. I love that. Thank you. So you know, my question about why was I covering my eyes becomes the cat. You know, cats are very good practitioners of you know, things change. And of course, that kerosene lantern is the same lantern as was in the earlier poem, the kerosene burning and let them not say. And those go back to when I was at Tassahara. It was before the era of solar panels and batteries, and we all lived by kerosene light for three years. And so kerosene lamps have stayed with me. If I swiveled my computer, I could show you the lamp. (laughs) It's still right over my shoulder.
1: (laughs) It didn't break. Okay.
0: (laughs) Something else did.
1: about breaking up the familiar it also happens at the level of syntax and grammar and i guess we often find this in poetry but sometimes in reading your poetry in fact you did a short interview with us that's in the august issue you drop verbs and i thought initially the managing editor and i said wait a second this has been dropped a word has been dropped and then we realized oh she's doing this several times and what was unfamiliar and jarring Sort of developed its own rhythm and we looked at things a little bit differently. So, what can you say about dropping those verbs, say, and all of a sudden we're forced to pay closer attention? I think.
0: Oh, I think you might have just answered your own question. It is all about attention, it is all about distillation. So, often when I teach poetry, one of the things that I tell my students is for every moment of your readers' attention, you must give them more than the moment of their life that they have given you. Mm. That's part of it is you have to, by using language with more concentration and distillation to it, you are inviting people to give you that attention which you then must repay more than amply there's a cowboy saying putting 10 pounds of rice into 5 pound sack and you know in cowboy context i think that's meant to be an insult but in practice context it's high praise and the other thing of course is no active communication is one sided it always is a collaboration of two. And if you say everything, if you spell everything out, you become incredibly tedious and people tune out. Nobody likes to be lectured at. Nobody likes not to be left to draw some conclusions of their own. And so I Leave gaps in my poems all the time because I trust you to fill them in. I trust the intelligence and fullness of the reader, of the listener, to bring themselves into this collaborative conversation you're making, whether it's in a podcast or in a poem on a page. You get to do your own part, and I rely on you doing your own part.
1: It seems like you also sometimes trust the earth itself to fill in those gaps in the poems. Is that crazy or what?
0: No, that's so poetically said. I'm very impressed. Yeah, we do. So one of my lifelong abiding support teachings has been, again, something I heard very early in my entrance time to Zen practice, which was the suggestion that Buddhist practice rests on a tripod. Great effort, great faith, which I think can be translated as great trust, and great doubt. And the idea of those being the three legs that one works with has been really central to me. Don't know mind, as we all first heard, I think, from the Korean Zen teacher Sung Sanim, it is no different from the romantic English poet Keats talking about negative capability, that if someone is going to be an artist, they must be willing to live without irritable reaching towards fact and reason, was Keats's phrasing of it. And I think abiding in uncertainty, abiding in doubt, questioning everything is central But equally central is the trust that you will not fall into an abyss if you surrender your certainty. Certainty makes me, at least, at great risk of arrogance and wrongheadedness. I'm quite worried about people who are utterly certain that they're right, because people who are certain that they're right will do terrible things in the service of their certainty. Whereas people who have a little doubt, what if I'm wrong? Then there is some possibility that we will not do terrible things because we believe in the rightness of our cause, because we believe that ends justify means. No, means are our lives, means are the moments of our lives. How we treat one another in any moment must be the embodiment of whatever it is. We hope for, wish for, but perhaps are not so certain of. I could be wrong about all of this.
1: (laughs) What you make me think about when I'm caught in my habitual way of thinking, I usually think I'm right and I'm usually pretty unhappy and very inflexible. (laughs) But that brings something up. You talked about living in the wilderness in your early days of Zen practice. You mentioned the lanterns. You had no electricity. I think you had to fetch your own water. There was no heat. And being a Californian myself originally, I know how cold and damp those nights can be. And you invited after a while the discomfort. You looked forward, not masochistically, but with curiosity about what that discomfort is. And Because you were talking about certainty, I wonder about the discomfort of sitting with an unanswered question, that doubt that you talk about, how can we learn? I mean, I don't want to be comfortable with it necessarily because that might defeat the purpose, but there is a discomfort. We naturally, as people, reach for answers. Sometimes I wonder, how do we then just sit with it?
0: How I have come to feel about all of the difficult emotions And, you know, amongst them is not only the discomfort of uncertainty and doubt, but also, you know, the really, to me, the two excruciating difficult emotions are anxiety and embarrassment or shame. They are almost unbearable. And what I realized at some point was this is information we need to have it is useful information. Evolution made us social creatures, beings who need to know when we have transgressed. If you're not able to feel discomfort, to feel anxiety, to feel embarrassment, how would you know that you weren't following the Eightfold Path with great fidelity? And another sentence I remember from those days was the teaching that the reason to follow all the Buddhist vows, the prohibitory vows, you know, not abuse the senses, not abuse sexuality, don't kill somebody, don't take what isn't given. And my favorite one for its complexity, don't possess anything, not even the dharma. I love that one. The teaching was, if you do any of those things, you're going to spend your time on the cushion being disturbed by them. And so, being disturbed is information we need because it tells us that we might want to do something differently going forward. It's useful information, all the negative emotions and all the positive emotions are useful information. They are also, of course, the very texture and fabric of our lives. And, you know, a favorite poem, not by me, but one I co-translated for the collection The Ink Dark Moon, is a poem by the thousand-year-ago woman poet Izumi Shikibu at the Heian Court in Japan. And what she said was, although the wind blows terribly here, the moonlight also leaks between the roof planks of this ruined house. And that was a life-changing poem for me to read. When I went to translate it with my co-translator, I had all the words. I knew something was there, but I knew I didn't understand what I was meant to be taking from it, from you know the data my co-translator had given me. And it took me a week to figure it out. And then when I figured it out, when I understood that what it is saying is if you live in a house which is impermeable to the cold winds and storms and difficulties of this world, you will also wall yourself off from the moonlight, from everything you want, from awakening, from enlightenment, from the fullness of love, whatever the moonlight might stand for to you, you don't get part of a human life without feeling all of it. You don't get to love without knowing that you are going to lose the one you love or they will lose you. It is inevitable. This is how our lives unfold. And so it really led to what you were describing a little while ago, this feeling of saying yes to the difficult, affirming the difficult. Poem after poem after poem in the book is me finding my way to that again. Because you don't get to solve these questions once. They will come back to us all of our lives.
1: What I really love about the Shikibu poem is that the house has to be ruined in order for the moonlight to get in. And also, it reminds me of Leonard Cohen talking about the cracks are where the light gets in. It's a similar kind of sensibility, which you
0: almost the same image. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I'm sure he read the poem at some point, anyway.
0: <laughs> oh, I wonder. I, we'd have to look at you know when he composed that song versus when mm-hmm. The Ink Dark Moon was published. I don't know offhand what year he wrote that particular song. And it was late, right. though, so maybe so. On the other hand, all these truths are available for anyone to find.
1: Before I ask you to read a few poems, I just want to ask you about one line that I remember you said, I couldn't find it online. And so maybe I've got it wrong. You tell me if I do. But when I read your book, this latest collection, I'm not thinking about Zen. I'm not thinking about Buddhism. And I remember you're once saying that in the end, there is no Zen. There's just life. Is that right?
0: I believe you. I don't remember (laughs) most things I've ever said, but that sounds like me. Because, you know, I've always felt that any human truth has to be available whether you have a particular vocabulary description of it or not. If there is truth in Zen, it must be available to people who live in places where they never would have heard the word Zen or any of the Dharma teachings. If there is truth in the Dharma, it is a human truth and it can be found.
1: Thank you, Jane. So to close, would you be willing to read a couple of poems from the new collection? The first would be, Counting New Year's Morning, What Powers Yet Remain to Me? And the other is, Each Morning Calls Us to Praise This World That is Fleeting.
0: Yes, I'm delighted to do that. And the first poem, the last line of it is where the book found its title. I tend to write a poem every New Year's Day. They don't all see print. This one did. Counting New Year's morning, what powers yet remain to me. The world asks, as it asks daily, and what can you make, can you do, to change my deep broken, fractured? I count this first day of another year, what remains. I have a mountain, a kitchen, two hands. Can admire with two eyes the mountain, actual, recalcitrant, shuffling its pebbles, sheltering foxes and beetles. Can make black-eyed peas and collards. Can make, from last year's late ripening persimmons, a pudding. Can climb a stepladder, change the bulb in a track light. For years, I woke each day first to the mountain, then to the question. The feet of the new sufferings followed the feet of the old, and still they surprised. I brought salt, brought oil to the question, brought sweet tea, brought postcards and stamps. For years, each day, something. Stone did not become apple. War did not become peace. Yet joy still stays joy. Sequins stay sequins. Words still bespangle, bewilder. Today I woke without answer. The day answers on pockets of thought as though from a friend. Don't despair of this falling world. Not yet, didn't it give you the asking? So there are those postcards we Mm -hmm. were talking about earlier. That's what uh, that poem was referring to with what can you do to heal my deep broken and fractured. And then this last poem to close our conversation Each morning calls us to praise this world that is fleeting. Each morning, waking amidst the not ever before, dressing inside the not ever again, under sunlight or cloud, brushing the hair, not yet arrived at the end-crimped finish, drinking coffee and buttering toast permitted to slip into coat, into shoes, I go out, I count myself part, carrying only a weightless shadow, whose each corner joins and departs from the shadows of others, mortal, alive among others, equally fragile, and with luck, for days even sometimes, this luxury this extra gift, able to even forget it.
1: Jane, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure.
0: Well, thank you. I have always loved any chance I've had to do anything with you and the Tricycle community. I so appreciate this conversation, James. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Jane. For our listeners, be sure to pick up a copy of The Asking, New and Selected Poems, available now. Thanks again, Jane. Take care. You've been listening to Tricycle Talks with Jane Hirschfield. To read an interview with Jane in the August issue of Tricycle, visit tricycle.org magazine. We'd love to hear your thoughts about the podcast, so write us at feedback at tricycle.org to let us know what you think. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. To keep up with the show, you can follow Tricycle Talks wherever you listen to podcasts. Tricycle Talks is produced by Sarah Fleming and the Podglomerate. I'm James Shaheen, Editor-in-Chief of Tricycle The Buddhist Review. Thanks for listening.